This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. My guest today is the author Tony Jensen. Tony teaches in the MFA programs at the University of Arkansas and the Institute of American Indian Arts, and she's the 2020 recipient of a Creative Writing Fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts. She is also the author of the stunning memoir, Carrie, which was our most recent Goop book club pick. Tony joined us live for our book club discussion, and we're excited to share that conversation with you here. We talked about identity, making peace with her family's troubled past, the staggering injustices forced on indigenous women, and the stereotypes that prevail for Native people in this country. We have a lot to learn from her story. I was talking to Tony before we went live, and then I had to be ushered away because we were talking about too many things that I wanted to ask her in front of all of you. So first of all, congrats on the book, Tony. It's, I'm sure, quite an emotional present to deliver in the midst of everything else that's happening in the world. But it's also, as I was saying, the only book or the first book, I'm certain it will not be the only, but it is the first book to really comment as well, a little bit on COVID, but more on George Floyd. So it was really interesting to hear your perspective on that. So for people who haven't read Carrie yet, can you give us a little bit of background on your family, your upbringing, your Métis roots? and anything else that sets the stage. Sure, yeah. Métis, as you say, which is just a mix in my case, uh, my family, that part of the family is from Alberta. And so it's just a mix of indigenous heritage with Irish generally, or sometimes French. And so my family traveled back and forth from Alberta to rural Iowa 
for generations before settling pretty much for good. Not everybody, but a large, a large section of the family in Iowa where I grew up. And I grew up in a no stoplight town in South Central Iowa with my family. And my dad, yes, is a card carrying NRA member. He's someone who always liked to hunt and he worked a trap line. And so hunting, fishing, being on a trap line, you have to take a gun along to the trap line generally in case something you've caught has to be shot. And so guns had a very practical everyday kind of purpose in my life, but there was also always the threat of guns and gun violence too, because we had domestic violence in our household. So I grew up also with my grandmother and her really strong and beautiful influence. And I think that that's part of what really made my childhood unique and special, especially these days when people live often far from relatives that I got to spend so much time with both my grandmothers. So yeah, very small town upbringing situated in the middle of the country in the middle of gun culture. So that's yeah. a little bit about that, yeah. And the book is, it's not predominantly about your dad, but he's a major force in the book in the way that you recall your relationship and the abuse. And also there's a lot of love in it. You know, we were talking again earlier about how the book felt which I think is probably really hard to do, like it wasn't written from a fresh wound that you were able to approach him and approach your relationship from a place of healing. But at the same time, it's interesting because I don't know if you would agree with this, but the person who is written about in some ways is the least is your mom. And and I, I was just curious about that because in reading several sections of the book where you, particularly after when your dad has sort of, one, she was witness, right, to the physical abuse and she herself experienced near drowning multiple times, I think, or he attempts to drown her. But you talk about, you know, near the end when you when you talk about the scene where he tried or to throw you through a window and that no one came to check on you and there was a certain amount of, complicitness, right? And that your mom sort of would remark about how you were a troubled teen or a troubled kid. You sort of denounced that. Regardless, how do you handle that now? I mean, do you, because it feels like your dad in a way you put into a box, but to me it felt like your, the relationship with your mother wasn't as reconciled. Is that fair? Yeah, no, that's entirely fair. And she read the book. I sent it to her the week before when I got my copies. And so my advanced copies. So she read it the week before everyone else did. And she got it and read it straight through till like four in the morning. And so I heard about it straight away. And, you know, she's sure that that night she did go to check on me. And it's possible I was asleep. So, you know, but while I was awake, no one did. I, so perhaps we'll have to add awake in um, to a later draft. So we still have that kind of relationship where, yeah, we don't agree on everything. And it certainly is not always easy, big things, small things. We agree on politics and we talk a lot about politics. We usually agree on what makes a good mystery novel. She reads voraciously. So we talk a lot about mystery novels and we agree on the facts of family history, the basic facts too, about my dad in particular and who he was and not everyone in the family supports that narrative. And so we're close despite, you know, early difficulties. We're also probably quite a lot alike temperamentally in many ways. 
And, you know, I say to her pretty often, she said it was, she liked the book, but it was difficult to read, as I can well imagine would be true, right? So, you know, I think that we have common ground over that she liked the book and where we part ways a little bit are just some nuanced things. So really, I was very moved by how grateful she was that the portrait was honest. And she feels like this is an important subject that people, you know, really need to be more open about and that the whole world would be better if we were all talked just a little more openly about all these subjects. So I think that that's part of it. Yeah. And you certainly talk, I think it's about your sister and sort of her her family and having been involved with the I think you say essentially a cult leader, but like this idea of what happens behind closed doors and how often what's most unsafe is private, right? And these yeah. these domestic scenes that happen sort of across cultures in this country and around the, the world that are silenced or ignored or justified, that those are the most pernicious. And until we start talking about them, no one knows what's happening, right? And no one knows that it's often the shared experience. Yeah, I've been surprised how many people I knew in childhood or early adulthood who've read the book and said, I had no idea we shared these experiences. People in my little tiny town, most of the town it seems like, or most of the people I know anyway, have read it or are reading it or plan to read it, which is uncomfortable, I will admit, because it's a very small town. But I'm hearing, that's the dominant thing I'm hearing is that they're surprised to learn this. Some of them, some of them are not, but that they had those same stories. And so I think once we start talking about it, that's the experience most of us will have, that other people also have those stories. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space, or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So much of the book is about whiteness, right? And being sort of white adjacent or passing as whiteness. And you talk about this, you don't mind if I read a section in the context of your dad, because of course, you're also trying to, you're giving an honest depiction, but you're, I think, crystal clear about the stereotypes that prevail in this country. So you write, there's a danger in writing about my father's drinking. I know this. Native men, including Métis men, so often are depicted as drunk, hopeless, more drunk, more hopeless. My father is Métis and also he drinks. We're far from culture and homelands here in Iowa. We're not returning. My father's drinking is about many things, not the least of which is the pressure to fit in, to comply with the dictates of whiteness. 
When I show him day drinking then, please note there are other day drinkers lined up beside him on their stools. Please note all of them are this thing America calls white. They are all striving to be better at whiteness, at prosperity. They are all failing, which is beautiful. But can you talk a little bit about this? This You sort of warn people before that section not to mistake your story for something it isn't. Yeah, I've had several of my former students from I who are white passing or white adjacent, and even some who aren't, reach out and say that's the part they appreciated, one of the early parts of the book they appreciated the most. And I think they appreciate it probably because that is a mistake that's so often made. You see it in reviews about Native people's writing. You see it in summaries. You see it in classrooms. You see it in book club chats, I'm sure. And so it's just a common misconception that when Native people are drinking, that it's some sort of you know, deep-seated character flaw within Native people. Many, many Americans, white, black, brown, all struggle with alcoholism and so and with drinking problems that perhaps wouldn't meet the criteria for alcoholism. So, you know, I think that that when the brushstrokes are so broad, we lose the nuance and we lose the characteristics of the person. My dad was sitting on that stool drinking and so were all those other people. And yeah, it was hard. The, I write a lot about the Reagan years and people's farms being foreclosed on and my grandmother's passing away during that time period too. And so it was like the very ground beneath us became shaky for one of the first times. And I think people are going through that right now too. And so to have too much judgment or to make that about a culture or a people or a race, I think it's deeply unfair and flawed because we don't turn that lens back on whiteness. Of course. One of my very favorite people, I don't know if you're familiar with him, he lives in Vancouver. His name's Dr. Gabor Mate, and he, he looks at addiction and ADHD and he works a lot with First Nations people and he's very quick to sort of not disparage the cultural part of it but to say essentially that it's a trauma response and so you're talking about people who you know have extreme inherited trauma of every variation have been as you say what's the language removed the passive voice removed right from their land by gun by bayonet and suffered for you know the first genocide of this country and Canada complicit as well. And that a lot of these things that we then turn and judge people for is essentially a creation of white supremacy and and trauma, right? And so I don't know, I love I love his perspective in general because I think it just changes the conversation and makes it less about your dad is an addict and more about him responding to whatever. I mean, do you know, sort of understanding where he came from and his story, does that does that help not define, but when you know how he was, does that make sense to you? It does in a sense, but I think also the majority, it's not at all, I wouldn't say the majority, but it's not at all uncommon for people in rural America, men of that age to go home, instead of going home to go to the bar and drink. And so the problems in the marriage that were unaddressed, you know, the problems in their careers or their workplaces, all those things, it's so much easier to stop and drink, they think, you know, than to go straight home and face 
not having enough money to face an angry wife, to face, you know, the kids being unruly or the kids being terrified or whatever's going on at home. And so that's the case in many American households. And so, yes, certainly some of it has to do with cultural and inherited trauma that's passed down, but also a lot of it just has to do with part of how you fit in in small American, mostly white towns. If the men all go to the bar and have a few drinks before they go home, it only becomes a problem, right? If A, you can't afford it, and B, you can't stop. And those were the situations that we were in. Um, not everyone was in those situations, but but almost everyone's dad, quite a few of the dads lined up at that bar and had drinks every day or many days. So, yeah. I mean, I just think it was a really common phenomenon that only became alcoholism for a few. Yeah, no, and as you write about that time, there was a lot of despair in the air and there is still to this day. But like when you talk about sort of the trapping of, like here is the thing about rabbit or squirrel cooked without love, cooked out of necessity, cooked with embarrassment over the necessity. It is dry, stringy, horrible. Cooked with love, say, at a grandparent's house by someone other than a mother, it tastes like anything else. It is food like any other. It is not the mother's fault. She wishes for grocery store chicken, plucked and clean and bearing the marker of the middle class, the cellophane pulled tight by unseen hands. Because your memoir is about so many things, so many things, and yet it's, and it's also about class and poverty and lack and, and that sort of despair that comes from it, which I think was, you know, as you say, cross-cultural, right? You know, my mom grew up in Iowa in lack too, Catholic family, too many kids, love them all. But it is a really interesting commentary on the day. And then to the NRA, and I did not know the story of, I knew the story, I knew about the NRA in the context of that it had been sort of singularly focused on hunting and portraying these idyllic hunting scenes. And then it became highly politicized with Reagan, right? That story about Herbert? Harlan. Harlan. Yeah. That he was convicted of murdering a man. I mean, what the hell? That yeah. is such a wild story. And why, I understand yeah. why you told it, but can you talk a little bit about the way that guns show up throughout the book? Sure. I mean, from the, the beginning of history, when, when, when I say things like you know, the Cherokee were removed or um, the Choctaw were removed, right? We don't, that's how we, that's how we talk about Indian removal in this part of the country anyway, in the Southeast. And I think that's still how it's taught mostly in history books. And so the idea that they were removed, well, at gunpoint, right? Or, well, she went into the truck with him and then no one saw her again for four days or forever in more contemporary context with missing and murdered indigenous women. Well, why did she get into the truck? Usually it's by force. Usually it's at gunpoint. And the NRA, the way that the messaging shifted during the Reagan era, I think is especially interesting. At the same time, you had Rush Limbaugh and others going on the airwaves for the first time, pushing a certain narrative of what America was supposed to be like. And then the other way, the NRA is pushing this new narrative that now guns are supposed to be about keeping your family safe more than they were about shooting rabbits or shooting birds or shooting deer. And so we had this cultural shift during that time when in the middle of the country anyway, which is certainly gun country, people also were losing their family farms and all of our agriculture was going corporate for the most part. 
So it was a huge seismic shift that I think is under discussed, under reported, under narrated for sure. And my family story is part of that story. So that switch in gun culture, yeah, it's easy to locate it back to, to the Reagan era. All of the people I know who hunt are gun sense, in support of gun sense laws, are appalled by the NRA as are a majority of Americans, but still, you know, people have access to guns in a way. Kids I know were accidentally shot and you talk a lot about sort of the living next to gun violence, being fear, afraid of gun violence in the context of your dad having a, an arsenal of weapons and that we are all complicit we're all however many degrees apart from one of these crimes, whether domestic or mass. And we, we do, we try to sanitize it. We try to separate ourselves from it. We try to otherize it. And as you point out, that story about the Tyson heiress, a majority of gun owners are white. I mean, and we know this, this is also, you know, we know that the mass, the people committing mass shootings in America are white men. Yes. Yeah, statistically, that's accurate. That's that's the yeah. dominant statistic. And it was a little surprising to me, I'll admit, that the dominant statistic for legal gun ownership also were were wealthy white men. So middle class to wealthy, ninety thousand a year and up. That was a little surprising, even to me. I had some notion that that might be a higher percentage than most Americans like to think about, but that it was the dominant percentage was surprising. Yeah. yeah, so we really we really aren't doing ourselves any favor when the narratives are so much about the other and the other is never white and the other is always responsible for the violence because that that is simply a false narrative statistically yeah. speaking. No, absolutely. Yeah, 40% of people who own guns in the US are white and rates of gun ownership are highest in households, yeah, that earn 90k plus. Let's talk a little bit about sort of, again, going back to this othering or not othering. And how do you imagine that we begin to solve for this? And, and then also within that context that, you know, your best friend from childhood who later overdoses, who says, you know, you know I'm, I'm part Kiowa. And you're like, which part? Like your elbow, your knee? Can you sort of talk about, it's so funny, my kids, they're doing Latinx heritage this month. And so he was like, what's my heritage? And I was like, I have no idea. I wouldn't even know how to answer that question. <laughs> but it's complicated, right? How do we begin to think about that? I think simple steps, because I think those two things are related, how we think about guns in relation to the other and how we think about ourselves as being separate from that. Um, there are several chapters where the gun violence is literally right next door. And though it's not inside my house, this is in you know, later chapters in the book and later sections of my life, it's hard then to ignore when it's literally right next door. But for most people, if it's not next door, it's in the neighborhood. It's a neighborhood over. Recently, there was a move toward parents asking other parents whether there were guns in the home before they let their kids go over. I think moms demand action are the ones responsible for that narrative starting. And that's a good step toward a conversation. But for some people, at least where I live in the South, it was so taboo to even suggest that small of a measure. And it surprised me a little. Everyone just assumes that the NRA and gun culture has such strong hold on America 
that we can't even talk about who really has the guns and what they're really doing with them and why we have them. It's mostly a fear-based program. Yes, there are hunters who only have them for hunting and who support gun sense laws and they're to be commended 100%. But also, that's not the dominant majority. The dominant majority of people do support gun sense laws, even gun owners, but we're not able to get it through the legislature. And why is that? And so I think thinking about the role of guns in our culture is broader than just you know who commits gun violence and why we're so attached to having so many guns per person in America. We're unique in that. And I think that can be investigated. And you're right that some of it perhaps has to do with the gap in knowing about ourselves, the gap in knowing about our neighborhoods and our neighbors, our own personal history. So there may be some connection between that, absolutely. And as you say, I mean, it's funny, I shot guns this summer in Montana, because it's fun. It's fun to go and like shoot cans and safely. But, you know, these things to become so extreme, whether it's guns or abortion or, you know, and I do think that the NRA has done a great job of turning this into a scary political issue where, as we all know, I mean, what is it like 90% of Americans want the government to take action and state, many states have taken some action, but it's ludicrous and it's the, you know, it's the NRA having hold, but it does trickle down to, um, and it is very classist, right? It is this idea of like, who would own a gun? And the reality is many people own yeah. guns, but yeah. it does certainly have that air. Yeah, and I think it's more visible in states like Montana and Arkansas where in Texas where people do concealed or open carry, because even concealed carry, you can often tell if you're looking, or you can really tell if you're looking closely. So absolutely, it's, a, it's more of an issue, I think almost in states where you can't conceal or open carry that people are deluding themselves. I think in places like Montana and Arkansas and Texas, it's really hard to delude yourself because you look over you know, um, on a public street and there's a gun. And so we know, we know the guns are here, but I guess that might not be true every neighborhood, but I think mostly people know. But you're right, there are whole swaths of America where it's easy to forget, it's easy not to think about it if it hasn't impacted anyone you know. Yeah. I, think that pool, I think that pool is shrinking every day though, unfortunately. No, it is shrinking every day. And it's just interesting. It's like the context is everything, right? So mm -hmm. yeah, when you're in Montana and you see a truck with a gun rack with rifles and someone in camo going to hunt, it's a very different experience than when you're at a Subway sandwich and someone has a gun or in the workplace, exactly. And the fact that that's legal in so many states and so many businesses is what and on campuses i mean you talk a lot about campus crime and campus gun violence and it's such a weird it's so violent and you know in its own subtle insidious way it is such an act of violence whether someone pulls the trigger or not it's terrifying yeah yeah it is and it's i think that there's this notion at least the people who push those that gun bill forward really believe that it'll make their children and their grandchildren in some cases safer on campus. It's a really interesting proposition. Safer from whom is the question that, that no one wants to ask, I think. These are white legislators. And I think they're worried about, you know, undue influence by 
people who are not like them, right? And so, you know, I'm using the little air quotes because when you dig down even a little bit into what that means, it's just racism, the fear of the other, it's just racism. And so now we have guns on our campus because of racism and, and undue fear. And, and yeah, it's unsettling, it's unsettling. Let's also talk about, you know, missing and murdered indigenous women and the trafficking mm -hmm. that's happening across I mean, across the country, but primarily sort of in Dakota, Montana, places where there's all this fracking. So can you, and it's, you write about it beautifully in, in pretty startling ways, but can you talk a little bit about what's happening? Sure. So anytime there's an extractive industry, pipelines go in and you have either fracking or oil extraction, if, there's so, if it's a rural place, which it often is, like in the Dakotas, little parts of Montana, Texas, Pennsylvania, and the Marcellus Shale too, then man camps begin to open up little trailer parks or things like that, that, you know, temporary sorts of housing in the middle of nowhere. There's no 911 address for these places. There's no sort of way if you're a woman who goes out, let's say, to one of these places thinking you have a cleaning job, and instead, the, the men there think you're there for sex or you think you're going to a party and instead, you know, you find a whole different sort of circumstance. You, if you still have your phone and you try to call 911, it's difficult to locate you, right? So there are structural problems with these man camps, I think, that don't get addressed enough. And yeah, so women are trafficked and there's a lot of the rates of sexual assault, rape, murder, but especially sexual assault and rape and trafficking go up exponentially around fracking sites. So that's one of the least discussed probably parts of the oil and gas industry, but it's prevalent and it's a it's a problem. It's certainly not the only way people are trafficked for sex in the States or throughout North America, but, but yeah, it's a big part of it. Yeah, and I feel like only recently are people becoming more aware that this is happening. And I love throughout the book that you sort of not only talk about sort of who the land was stolen from as sort of one of the consistent themes throughout the book, sort of mapping the geography back to whoever was removed, but also the fact that you use the dictionary. So what's, what was that about? Sort of the defining of words, what was that, what were you trying to achieve? I think our language really sets how we think about or feel about a topic in many cases. And oftentimes I would be trying to explore a concept and Webster's definitions would be useful in going back historically to find how the words were first defined. When they started, often there would be a word, say, that came into the lexicon around the time of a war and it would be a violent word. And I would think, oh, well, of course, you know, history is just helping create language. That's how language works. And so I thought that it would be interesting to share some of my finds with readers, mainly because they add a layer of complexity into what, how the country was formed, how our thoughts about violence were formed in many ways, or how words evolve over time even. Basically, if words can evolve like that, there isn't any reason our thoughts and feelings and language around gun culture can't evolve like that. There's a point in one of the essays where I question if a domestic violence bullet 
um, enters the body any differently than a regular bullet, right? Because if you shot by your husband, let's say, um, your husband probably gets a lesser sentence if you don't die because then it's not murder and it's domestic case. And it's certainly prosecuted and treated differently. The media attention is entirely different. If there's a mass shooting and it's five people and they're all in the same family, is that a domestic shooting? Is that a mass shooting? So basically I was hoping to get to the root of some of these definitions and I know that they're legal definitions, but when we throw them around outside the courtroom, um, who are we serving? Why are we doing that? To what end? And is that carving up in the same way do our racial carving ups or that sort of a move that we make repeatedly in American culture? I mean, who's, who's being served by that? So that's part of why I included Webster's. Also Webster's recently has become political on Twitter and I love that, I love that so much. Yeah. yeah. But this was obviously the book was before that, but, but I, I feel very justified by how cool Webster's has become recently. I mean, language matters and yeah. words matter. And I think, you know, what we're living through is clearly sort of an attempt politically to pretend like they don't in a way that, you know, just coming off of the debate last night, what was said matters, right? Or what was not said, which was a not, you no know, denouncing of white supremacy. And when you think about sort of where we're at now and you think about people like your dad, I thought it was really, really interesting to hear you talk about his political evolution and the way that Reagan in particular even though that the economy sort of destroyed the ground under which people like your dad stand, but how it shaped him and talk radio and politicalization of news sources. Can you talk a little bit about what you experienced as you watched that happen? Yeah, I was pretty young when all of that was happening, but we were a household before there was who argued over which Democratic candidate, right, if you were going to support so-and-so or so-and-so. And those were the good arguments. And then it was really a neat trick the Republicans pulled during those years, having Reagan run and be successful and come out on the notion of being the protector of America, when what he did, of course, was introduce more guns and more hate speech and more processed food and less financial stability and environmental and economic stability for the whole middle of the country. And so how that was accomplished was strategic and was brilliant political strategy, but it was very, very bad locally for many families. And so, yeah, what that felt like was a fracture or separation in many ways, because to buy into the notion that to be prosperous, you if you were a farmer, you had to buy all this equipment and you had to farm more and more and more land and you had to use more chemicals. That's what, that was part of the bill of goods that people were sold. And you had to own more and more guns because you had to protect what was yours. And I question that in the book, you know, why, why men with guns think that their families are theirs to own and protect in that way, like property. And that was an idea that, that really separated the family because my mom does not believe in any of those things. Um, we always had a garden. We always tried to eat. We got our chicken from the grandparents' farm whenever possible. 
you know, we had fresh produce straight from the yard and she was really early on a lot of those ideas. So, so it was a big shift and she's been a Democrat, a loud and proud Democrat for her life. So yeah, it was, a, it was a big cleaving. Yeah. It's really interesting just to think about that evolution in some of these more rural states. So one, I love this question from the audience because my family, not me so much, but big bird watchers. So can you talk about the bird references and why you included them? Are the birds connected with the idea of crossing borders? And I would add, or is it a connection to your dad? I think both, absolutely. I mean, honestly, they started pretty organically. And once you start, I published a few of the essays in literary journals or other spaces. And so once the editors start to notice the birds, you can't unnotice them. So where I think they came from in my subconscious, though, were a couple of places. My dad certainly being a hunter and also a protector of wildlife through different organizations. Ducks Unlimited is one of them that he belonged to. And so... You know, it's a strange sort of concept, maybe for some outside of the middle of the country or the South, or maybe, yeah, I don't know, maybe there are people who belong to these organizations coastally too, but the notion of protecting wildlife so that there's more wildlife to shoot at, but also that you love the wildlife. I mean, it's very complicated. And I just grew up with all those sort of weird complications just being balanced like that. So that's part of it. I think birds are beautiful. And when you write a book like the one I wrote, you're gonna need some inherent beauty and birds are everywhere. So once I did that organically, maybe five or six times, I did start to move the birds in more strategically, absolutely. That's not a decision I regret. They do cross borders and they cross places that once were borderless, right? Whole swaths of territory that maybe once were Lakota land, for example, and now are demarked into states. They cross rivers. You know, all of the things that are talked about, water and land and people in place, the birds have been there for, and the birds still travel, not paying attention to those borders. So all of that is in there. And also the last thing I'd say about the birds, I found a note in an early piece of writing that I did not that long ago after the book was published, looking back through old files. And there was a little mini rant, just one paragraph about if men like Jonathan Franzen and everywhere I've worked, there's been at least one white man who wrote only about birds, um, can write about birds. I can probably write about birds because, you know, it seemed like such a big luxury that they had their whole lives just to go out and watch birds and write about it. And some of us also have to write about social justice or we feel we do. You know, we have to write about missing and murdered indigenous women and pipelines and all sorts of things that are just really vitally important to our lives and to our getting to live our lives. And so apparently at one point I had a lot of feelings about that and I don't even remember writing it, but that's probably why there are so many birds in the book too. It's funny. I commissioned yeah. Jonathan Franzen to write a birding story for Traveler when I was an editor there. My parents yeah. also talk about sort of the bird watching and how it's a way, one of accessing culture, but in a totally different way, because you're not going to the temples, you're going to see the birds, but also about sort of the, it's really telling in terms of economic devastation and how these sanctuaries and, and bird health is sort of on the brink. And yeah, I think there, it's a fascinating sort of trope that's really relevant. And I just want to say in defense of hunting, because again, I think we get really 
classist and judgy about it. And if you don't grow up in that culture, you don't understand it. But the reverence for public lands, which typically is a, not necessarily a political issue in more rural, it depends now with fracking and whatnot and carving up land to extract, it is. But access to public lands is a crucial issue in many of those states and hunting is often very humane. So this isn't tro trophy hunting, it's hunting, it's an unsanitized way, instead of going to the grocery store to get your saran wrap chicken, which you acknowledge as being part of the middle class, like you're actually participating in a natural cycle of death that many of us choose to ignore by just getting our meat from the grocery store. So I think there's a lot of honor in it and having and loving animals and being a vegetarian for much of my life, there is nothing more excruciating than seeing deer when they're overpopulated and it's a heavy winter of snow, seeing deer, emaciated deer starving to death and dying. So as population control, I am a fan, but I agree. It's a really complicated, it just seems complicated. And, but I think that feeding your family in that way, there is a lot of honor in that and being close to death and honoring the animal by eating it. Like you talk about your dad, not shooting that you don't shoot animals that you don't eat. Yeah. And he, you know, he would say you don't point your gun at anything you don't intend to kill and you don't shoot anything you don't intend to eat. And I think those are just generally probably very good, good sorts of ways of thinking. Yeah. But again, yeah, it's like it gets swept up into this world of guns and we have to be able to be more nuanced about our conversations, what's appropriate yeah. and what's not. And what in some ways is not life affirming, but life sustaining and what is the opposite. So I have a question from Sarah. I was curious what emotions you felt while writing. Was the experience cathartic or uncomfortable or both? The uncomfortable parts for me mostly were writing about other people's bad experiences. I, by the time I wrote the book, I was writing from a pretty good place as far as my distance from my own experiences, even things that I lived through pretty recently. I think I had enough distance or I wouldn't have written about it if it had been too traumatic. There were heart racing moments, sure, and there were portions that were difficult, but really writing about my own things weren't as hard. I had a harder time writing about the things that happened to friends, family, former students. Yeah, when I read it, I realize how much more emotional I am about that because I get choked up and during those passages. So, and it was the same when I was writing it. I would get to the place where I needed to write a thing and I would go drink coffee or take a run around the neighborhood or, you know, do something else, walk the dog. I mean, anything except writing the scene where the bad thing happened to someone I care for. So those were the hard parts for me more than my own experiences. The other part that I thought was so really subtle and beautifully told was when you were talking about your ex-husband and you know, the, the conveyor belt and going to the grocery store when, I don't know, you were eight, eight or nine months pregnant and being denied, having no money. And then when his family comes and he is off being an archeologist for $12 an hour or whatever, and then his family comes and all of his sisters and he's like, how does everyone, how did everyone get here? And then you realize that he came from enough. I thought that those passages because this man comes from enough, but he believes it's important to withhold from me both the enough and the knowledge of the enough 
He's been too prideful to ask his parents for help they certainly would have given. He's been withholding the certainty, perhaps, because he understands I come from less, as did most of our graduate school friends. I would never have entered into this relationship had I understood he came from safety, from financial material safety, and denied it to me while I worked and worked, while I carried and carried and carried our child. I would never have hooked my life to any man who came from safety and pretended otherwise. There is no greater betrayal than this pretending. There's no, and then you talk about how there's no worse life than a pretending life. Can you talk a little bit about that, sort of that? I mean, I can understand why you were pissed, but also like why that was such a potentially marriage breaking moment. I mean, I had a lot of health and physical complications during the pregnancy. I had just, and there, it comes up in, in that essay too, that I just had bacterial meningitis and was very, very ill. And my doctor smartly said, the one thing probably, there are several things you probably shouldn't do in the next year and one of those is get pregnant. And then of course that's what happens three or four months later. And so maybe longer than that, six months later, that year though, in any case. And so, you know, it was just a tremendous physical strain and financial strain. When you, one of the dirty secrets of academia that we don't talk about, there are many, mind you, but one that we really, really don't talk about is that gap between when you get a job and when you start the other job, there is no money that summer. Generally, there's no health insurance. There's no anything by way of support. And then you arrive and you don't get paid. You start in August, but you often don't get paid till September, October, not a full paycheck. And you don't get reimbursed for removing expenses till then. So add all of that onto that just recovered or not quite recovered really from a major illness and then pregnancy. I think those are the reasons in part, like just that set of circumstances, why it hit me so strongly. But also, I grew up in a house where we pretended to be way more functional than we were, to have more financially. My mom was just a master of doing a lot with just very little. And so, you know, we fronted pretty hard that we had a little more than we did and that things were quite a bit better than they were. And so I didn't want to go back to that. I didn't want any part of that kind of pretending. Thank you so much for joining us, Tony, and thank you for your book. And I cannot wait for whatever it is that you write next. Thanks for tuning into my chat with Tony Jensen. If you haven't already, please pick up a copy of her memoir, Carrie. I can't recommend it enough. And if you'd like to join the Goop Book Club, head to goop.com slash goop book club. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.